I've been asking you for the past couple weeks, where have you seen the gospel this week? Now, I've mentioned as we've been going through this, there are lots of so-called gospels. Maybe we'll make the distinction between the gospel and a gospel. And we said a gospel is what do people look to to solve what they realize is broken in their lives? And it was interesting to me just even this week to, to kind of watch the news. Not that I would recommend it, but I watched the news. And, and it felt like what was good news for some people was bad news for others. And how interesting it was to see that for some, the answer to every problem they ever had was bringing even more problems for those who didn't share that perspective. And how interesting it is when we think about the good news of Jesus Christ. We've, we've even experienced that this morning in, in our worship. If you look at the front of your bulletin, even the way Chris and the worship team has laid out the scriptures that we have shared together, the songs that we have shared together, we see the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the acknowledgement of who God is, the recognition of our own need, our own sin, our, our, our recognition that, that without Christ we have nothing to offer but despair. And yet, even as we have sung and even as we have read, we know the hope that we have is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. That is the good news. And even as we look at our passage this morning and continue to think about that response, that really is the gospel in its most simplest terms. Who God is, our sin, man, what Christ has done, who Christ is, and our response to him. So again, I ask you, where have you seen the gospel this week? And Maybe the songs that you listened to or the, the movies that you watched or the conversations that you have had. Did you hear or did you see a gospel or, or the gospel this week? I got to tell you, I saw the gospel this week in this wonderful book called All That Matters. I don't know if you've seen this on the uh, Amazon uh, book list or the New York Times bestseller, but this was actually written by Jackie Jerome. Yes, this Jackie Jerome who is, is with us and I so appreciated being able to read it because I got to see how the gospel has impacted Jackie's life over her entire life. Now, I know I ask you to write out your testimony, write out your gospel story, and I encourage just one or two pages, but Jackie apparently was the overachiever as a child and, and expanded more than just that. But, but it was so wonderful to see how through uh, her life and through the difficulties and struggles that she experienced, she saw the grace of God poured out in her lives. And, and if you don't know Jackie that well, I would encourage you to, to get to know her. I would also encourage you to, to, to pick up her book. Uh, apparently Bill has copies unbeknownst to Jackie. Um, Jackie thought this was the last remaining copy, but apparently Bill has some if you'd like to borrow one. Um, but through that book, you hear about Jackie's struggle with chronic pain her entire life. And we often think about praying for miracles and, and miracles being that God would take away her pain. But it's interesting, my, my, my takeaway from, from her book and from the story of the gospel in her life is it's the healing, the miracle, is not in how God removes her pain. It's how God proves himself to be completely satisfying in, he, in who he is, regardless of the pain. And I thought, what an amazing picture of the gospel. So again, I would encourage you, please, I wish every single one of you came with a manual. 
I, I really do. As, as, as your pastor, I wish all of you had one of these. I could go to the shelf and, and learn about your history and how God's impacted your life and, and how Scripture has, has impacted you. I wish all of you came with one of those. So please, I'm asking you, for those one or two pages, or even just time to sit down with you and just learn how God's story, the Gospel story, has impacted your life. Because really, when it comes, it comes to the Gospel story, when it comes to thinking about the grace of God in our lives, there's a, there's a question that, that people are beginning to ask when they start to hear about this gospel of grace, and that's if it's got to be too good to be true. It has to be too good to be true. Because if you are like me, and if somebody says it's, if it's too good to be true, it's got to be too good to be true, right? It's not, it's not possible. I, I've never... I've never fallen for those buying a car with only 10 cents down. I haven't. Because I know it sounds too good to be true. It probably is. I've never tried to buy a home with no money down. Because if it sounds too good to be true, I've probably missed out on a number of Nigerian lottery winnings. I have missed out on the opportunity to receive millions of dollars in helping out Nigerian princes that have contacted me by email because I've always kind of operated in that sense, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And what's interesting is, in this point in the book of Romans, as Paul has been laying out the, go- the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as he's been working his way through that, the, the chapter we're going to look at today starts this transition from understanding the gospel of salvation to how it's lived out in our lives in sanctification. If you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And the question that kind of starts this off are some of those people who believed that it wasn't just enough to receive God's grace by faith, but you also had to live a certain way in order to earn God's favor, that you had to follow certain Jewish customs or, 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 or certain uh, practices in order to be made right with God. And everything up until now, Paul has wanted them to know, no, it's faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, is how we can stand before God and be in Christ. And as he starts to make that turn here in chapter 6, I want us to just take a look at what seems like one of those questions, it's got to be too good to be true. It can't be, it can't be possible that what makes us right with God is God's grace, His gift to us that we receive by faith. So if you would... Follow along with me in Romans chapter 6. I'm going to be reading verses 1 all the way down to 14 in this section. And I'm reading it from the New Living Translation because I I want this to be the language that you explain this in. So when you come across people in in family relationships or at work and and you start talking about this gospel of grace and whether it's too good to be true or not, that, that this would be the kind of language that you would help them understand in. So Beginning in chapter 1 of verse 6. I'm going to even back up a verse just so you can see where the transition takes place here. In 521, it says, So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is when the church can say, Amen. Right? Amen. It is about the grace, the wonderful grace that now rules instead, giving us right standing with God. And then you hear, then you hear those uh, skeptics 
well then, should we keep on sinning that God should show us more and more of His wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we have joined Him in His death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. And, and here's where we're going to go today. You can, you can see everything here that this good news, this good news is that in Christ Jesus, that is so important for us to understand here, in Christ Jesus, sin and death are defeated enemies. And our whole bodies are instruments of praise. Now we're going to unpack that together. But what we're learning this morning from this passage is that in Christ Jesus, sin and death are defeated enemies and our whole bodies are instruments of praise. I think sometimes when people think about the gospel, they think about the good news, they only think about the good news in the context of preparing for the afterlife, preparing for eternity. Even some of the ways that we talk about the good news, we say, well, if you died tonight, today or tonight, how would you know that God would allow you into heaven? We often will hear a question like that when we're sharing our faith with someone. But I want us to notice that when we look at a passage like this, the good news not only changes the way that we die, it changes the way that we live. I'd love if you would write that down somewhere on the back page of this that the good news of Jesus Christ does not just change how we die, it changes how we live. And that's the transition that's being made here in this section. Those first couple chapters of Romans dealt with our sin and our need to be saved. The next couple chapters up through five really dealt with the salvation that comes through Christ by grace through faith. And as we move to 6, we see Paul now talking about what we have called sanctification. That's just this process where you and I are becoming more and more 
like Christ. Now we know, we know because of the grace of God, there is nothing that you and I do in our power and in our strength as a part of our salvation. That is completely and totally an act of God's grace. But in our sanctification, in this working out of our faith, as Paul talked in other places about, we know that now, the way the gospel has shaped us and changed us, we are now called to live differently. We're now called to live distinctly. We're now called to live as representatives of Jesus Christ. And the good news is, through His grace, He is equipping you and preparing you to do that. This passage we just read ends with some commands, some imperatives, and I want you to understand they are absolutely impossible without the grace of God. They're absolutely impossible. There's no way that you could even consider being obedient with any of them without the grace of God. But let's first start to unpack what I mean at the beginning here. Beginning again in verse 1 of of chapter 6, we're making that transition. Hey, if you read Romans along with us this week, maybe even the way this started kind of echoes Romans 3. The question and back and forth. Should we keep on sinning? Should we keep on doing these things if God's grace abounds? So if you read with us, I hope that verse uh, chapter 6 verse 1 reminded you of things that you had already been reading in, in, in chapter 3. But it shows us that sin and def- death are defeated enemies. That for you and I who are now in Christ, because of what Christ has done, because He has saved us by His grace, again, making that distinction, now we live differently. I love how he says it here uh, in, uh, in the verse where he talks about forgetting where he talks about, have you forgotten? Uh, Verse 3, have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we were joined with him in his death? Really, these first 10 verses talk about the special union that we have in Christ through the good news. Through putting our faith in him and receiving the spirit to live in us, that, that now not just our we united with Him, but His death, the death He died, now applies to our lives. The the life He lives now applies to our lives, that we are in Him. And one of the ways that we are in Him is often pictured in baptism. He gives us the picture of for the reader here to know that, hey, the same way that baptism pictures the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you identify with Jesus through baptism, you are identifying, you are representing that you are in Him in that same act. Now, I know baptism can be one of those things that's a little confusing, but I think this passage gives us the wonderful picture of what baptism is for us. Uh, That for the individual, baptism is a public action to a personal response. Baptism is the public identification with Jesus Christ. To say, there has been an internal transformation when I put my faith in Him. When I've responded to the grace of God in my life, there's been an internal change in me. I now want Christ to be Lord of my lives. And I want you to know that. I want you to see that. You, always can't, you can't always see the internal transformation in someone's life. But what baptism is, is a public action to that personal response of faith. So everyone can see. That's one of the reasons why the church has historically baptized with immersion. The idea of of going back under the water. That that picture of going under the water is that identification with 
the death of Christ and coming up out of the water, the identification with the resurrection of Christ in, in new life. I know historically there have been lots of churches that have done a lot of different things with, with baptism for their own purposes. But in many ways, this identification of baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that we, that we demonstrate that is through this going over backwards in immersion and coming back up out of the water. So it's a, it's a public action to a personal response of faith. The other thing that baptism is, is a public affirmation. It's a public affirmation for the church to say, yes, we acknowledge and we recognize this transformed life. We don't baptize ourselves. Now, I may or may not be on record for baptizing nephews in my parents' pool against their will, but I don't think those actually counted as baptisms. Uh, when they were younger, I was known to grab them and immerse them, although it really wasn't in the name of Christ. It was really in the name of just wanting to immerse my nephews. But we don't baptize ourselves. None of us come to Christ and say, okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to fill up the, the bathtub this afternoon and I'm going to identify with Christ in baptism. No, baptism is something that is a public affirmation. It's a public affirmation for the church. It's the church's recognition that we see the gospel in your life. We see the good news of God's grace in your life and we affirm that with you. Yes, it is a personal action, but it is also a, a public affirmation for the church to say, yes, we agree. Yes, we're with you. Yes, we recognize it. That's why I think the best baptisms are always public and as public as can be. You know, there was a period of time in, in, in church history when baptisms were always outside, which was always painful in the winters in the northern regions, but baptisms were outside because we wanted everyone to see the public proclamation of faith. Now, when we do them indoors, um, although I did find out from Matt that this isn't heated, so if you still kind of want the indoor-outdoor experience, we can still provide that for you uh, here. But it's a way to, to gather your friends and your neighbors, to gather the church together, and for you to make that public action, but also have a public affirmation in the body of Christ. The church is encouraged and built up through the participation of the baptisms of others. And in this passage, it describes baptism as a picture of what this union with Christ looks like. So that, that picture of, of his death and being raised like Christ was raised and participating in that, that when you and I follow the, the example of Christ and the command of Christ in baptism, we are demonstrating that we are in Christ. So I would encourage you, if you have never been baptized as a believer, please come to me and talk about it. I understand from what I've heard, there's a trap door back here where we can, uh, we can make that happen, not only as your public action, but also as a public affirmation. If you have not yet been baptized as a believer, uh, please come to me and, and talk to me or any of the elders. We would love to learn more about your story and how God's been at work in your lives, but, but to help you make that both public affirmation and action, uh, because it is, it is a picture of our union with Christ. So as he again, walks through these first 10 verses. He's talking about what it means to be in Christ. And he gives the, the picture for that. The illustration, perhaps, that, that Paul is giving here is one of baptism. 
as he's walking through for them to, to understand. But he's not just talking about being raised to life. And he does talk about that. He talks about how Christ defeated death once and for all. That his resurrection, that when we participate in that through faith, that we likewise have been transformed and we are not going to die the same way anymore. We might have a physical death, but we will not have a spiritual death anymore where we are separated from God because of what Christ has done. And that's what he's unpacking in these verses 3 and 4. We, were, we died, we're buried with Christ by baptized. baptism. In verse 5, we've been united with him in his death. We will also be raised to life as he was. So there's a wonderful picture here on the defeat of death. That death no longer should be something that we fear as followers of Christ because of the good news. Now, on the other hand, I've got to be honest with you, not a lot of us are looking forward to it either. Uh, that it, in, in some cases, death is still something that makes us, and let's be apprehensive as believers, but I think, I think if I'm right, I think Prasanna is going to fill in the blanks for this uh, next week as he talks about the gospel as it relates to this idea of death, but still recognizing that we don't fear death the same way as those who do not know Christ. Death is no longer an enemy for us. Death is a defeated enemy in what Christ has done. So, so we've got that going on in this first section, but we also have this discussion of the defeat of sin. And he uses like slave language here talks about how we were bondage to sin without Christ and now that Christ is a part of our lives and we are in Christ we have been freed from that bondage and he verse 6 we're no longer slaves to sin because of what Christ has done he has set us free from the power of sin he's telling us that sin now is defeated and we no longer have to be enslaved to it that is such good news that is really good news the difficulty that I have, and maybe you have, is even though through what Christ has done, I've been, I've been removed from the penalty of my sin. Christ has taken that for me on the cross. I, I, I've been removed from the power of sin over my life because he's freed us from that in what he has done. It's a defeated enemy now. I still struggle with sin. How is that possible? How is it possible that I still struggle with sin? Well, it's because you and I are still living in a world that's sinful and broken, that's crying out for a Savior, that's crying out for Christ. And I do not want us to, to mistake this passage and think, well, if I'm, if I'm struggling with sin, then I must not be a believer. Actually, sometimes it might be the opposite. Maybe the fact that you're struggling with sin might really demonstrate that you are a believer. Because if you're not a believer, you're probably not struggling with sin. It's probably not a struggle for you whatsoever you don't see how much better what God has for you is but please don't mistake a passage like this and think if I still sin then I'm not a believer because I don't think that's true I think the reminder here for us is when you are tempted don't surrender to a defeated enemy don't surrender to a defeated enemy sin has been defeated in what Christ has done on our behalf. 
we have been freed from the that's power over our life. We've, we've been delivered from its penalty. One day when you and I are in glory with God in heaven, we will be even delivered from the, the presence of sin anywhere and everywhere. And that's going to be a glorious day. You and I will no longer deal with temptation. And there are so many days I long for that day. Why? Because I'm so sick of my own temptation. I'm so sick of how it continues to come back in the same ways, in the same manners, over and over again. But here's what I need to know. Again, not only does the gospel change how I die, the gospel changes how I live. Because now I know that I don't want to surrender to a defeated enemy, even though I'm still struggling. Actually, Paul in the next chapter, in Romans chapter 7, talks about what a wretched man it is. And now he still struggles with, with doing things he really doesn't want to do. He reminds us that that is a part of killing the sin that still exists in us and around us. But the important thing for you and I to remember as we look at a passage like this is do not surrender to a defeated enemy. After all, even Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter, one of his last letters to him in 2 Timothy 2.22 Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. He's telling us to run from, to run to, and to run with. He's acknowledging the presence of sin and temptation in our lives, but he says, hey, sin is a defeated enemy now. Stop surrendering to a defeated enemy. When temptation comes, run from it. Run to the good news of God's grace and His forgiveness. And run with other believers. Run with the encouragement of others. Run alongside those who are also wanting to run from their sin as well. There's a, there's a wonderful picture here of the value of being in Christian community. We have those to run with us, to enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. I've got to be honest. I don't think any of us, myself included, do well fighting temptation all by ourselves. I don't think we do. I don't care if you're one of those self-determined, super-will-powered, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of people. Super-disciplined, I don't think it works. I, I think we fall. But I think when we begin to recognize that yes, because we live in a sinful and fallen world, and yes, the fact that we're continuing to be made like Christ every day, we still struggle with sin. We need the continual reminders to run from it, to run to the good news of God's grace and forgiveness, and make sure we're running with people as well too. I think that's really the only way that we can run well, is to run to, to run with, and to run from. As he's working through this passage, though, again, he's reminding us that sin and death are defeated enemies. And beginning in verses 11 through 14, he starts to give us some, some commands. Some, you know, some of the, the, the writers call these imperatives. There's some imperatives listed here. And, and even if you, uh, if you like alliteration like we all do, right? They're, they're, some of them start with C's. Uh, in verse 12, uh, don't let, or verse 11, consider yourselves dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ. Consider yourselves. 
Verse 12, don't let sin control the way you live. Verse 13, give yourself completely to God, for you were dead, but you now you have new life. Those are beautiful commands for us that are horribly impossible without the grace of God. Without God's grace transforming our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, without being in Christ, that is an overwhelming set of to-do lists that I can never measure up to and I will always fail. I will never completely consider myself dead to the power of sin. I will never not let sin control how I live and I will never be able to give myself completely to God without the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in my life. It's just impossible. Maybe you've felt that frustration before too. But again, the good news in this passage is that because of Christ, because of Christ, not just our sin and death defeated enemies, but our whole bodies are called to be instruments of praise. Everything about us, everything God is doing and using in our lives is called to reflect Him in praise. I can no longer sell well, you know, it was, it was just some thoughts. It really didn't have any actions a part of it. Well, my whole body is to be an instrument of praise. It's not just my actions. It's also my thoughts. Or maybe I can say, well, it's not my thoughts. It was just my actions. You know, sometimes we say really awful things in the context of these things and we say, well, it's just who I am. You know, I'm, 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 a, I'm an angry person. It's just who I am. Uh, I'm a... I'm a person who's prideful. It's just who I am. Well, that may be true, but that's not who you are in Christ. In Christ, you are now transformed. In Christ, you are now equipped and called to live differently. In Christ, sin no longer is your master. In Christ, you have been equipped with God's power, His Word, the community of other believers, in Christ you know that I can no longer just say that's just how I am because that's not how you are anymore because of what Christ has done. Not because of anything that you have done or can do or should do or would do, but because of what Christ has done. And i got to tell you, this is the good news. This is the good news, not just in how it changes us from from death to life, giving us new life, eternal life. Not just the life that God has given us for eternal life with Him forever, but this is the life that transforms us now. The good news of Jesus doesn't just change the way that we die. doesn't just change the way that we think about death. The good news of Jesus changes how we live tells us how we combat sin. It tells us how we work with one another. It changes how we deal with temptation. It changes how we see ourselves. Because verses uh, 11 through 14 reminds us that sin no longer is our master in Christ. We no longer live under the requirements of law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. In verse 13, so use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. I can't separate my actions from my thoughts. I can't separate my behaviors from my intentions. 
My entire body has been redeemed through what Christ has done. And that's good news. And now I can fully surrender to him. I've got to stop surrendering to a defeated enemy. That's just dumb. But it takes, when I sense that temptation coming on, to remind myself of passages like this. In that moment of temptation, I need to be able to remember and to remind myself to, just as our passage says, to consider. I need in that moment to be redirected by God's Spirit, by His Word, and by you. To consider myself dead to the power of sin in verse 11. To be reminded in verse 12 that sin should not control the way that I live. I shouldn't use any part of my body as an instrument of evil to serve sin and give myself completely to God. Totally. Not holding anything back. Nothing in the shadows. Nothing in the closet. Nothing hidden. Giving myself completely to God as a spiritual act of worship. He's even going to say this again in Romans 12, isn't he? That we would present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. This is the good news. The good news just wasn't a rescue plan to save you from death. The good news not only changes how you die, it changes how we live. Let us lean in to this good news. I still want you to reflect on God's good news in your life. How he worked. You don't have to come up with 120 or more pages like like Jackie did. But consider how God has worked in your life through people, through situations, through opportunities. Write that stuff down. Sometimes it's good for us to remember those things. Sometimes I feel like in the moment when the temptation's hitting us and when we're feeling like we want to throw in the towel, we can forget those good things. Even if you never share it with somebody else, you yourself need to be reminded of God's grace in your life. And the other thing I would ask you for, if you haven't been baptized yet, if you haven't made that public affirmation and action, if you haven't displayed that, then let us be a part of that as a church family. Let us share in that good news. Let's, let's open up the trap door up here and, uh, and celebrate that with you. So please let me know, let any of the elders know if you'd like to talk more about what baptism might look like. But when we look at this passage and we recognize the gospel is as good as it is true. It is as good as it is true. It is not too good to be true. It is as good as it is true. Came across a quote by D.L. Moody this week, even thinking about a passage like this. God has never made a promise that was too good to be true. And that is the good news that we have because of what Christ has done. That is the good news that we have because of the grace of God that we receive by faith. It transforms everything forever, including right now. Changes not only the way that we die, but especially the way that we live. Let's live today and every day in the power of God's amazing grace. Let's pray.
God, thank you. We are overwhelmed when we consider how desperately we needed you. Even today, even as those who've put their faith and trust in you, even as those who call you Savior and Lord, God, sometimes we are just so overwhelmed and disappointed in our failings and those times that we've given in to sin, those times that we have surrendered to defeated enemies. God, we pray that you would help us. You would help us be moved to repentance, that we would be moved to come to you and and recognize what you do, that we have sinned against you. Help us to recognize that it's only through you. It's not a not a pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or getting our life cleaned up kind of gospel. It is a you and you alone gospel. Because any other gospel is not really good news. God, thank you. Thank you for the good news of your grace. Thank you for the good news of what Christ has done for us. Thank you for initiating. Thank you for rescuing us. God, thank you for giving us hope in the midst of a fallen and broken world that often includes us. God, thank you that we have hope both for now and forever because of the good news of Jesus Christ. May we live every day dependent on your grace, on your word, on your spirit, in all that we do, in your glorious name, amen.